Hi, I'm Reverend Grant Mansfield. And I'm Rabbi Andy Warmflash. And this This is Common Grounds. At any rate, I I think at this point, um, it might be nice to hear from you all, y'all, y'all, my friend here says y'all, not all y'all necessarily, but. uh, Yes, by the way, it's gender inclusive, so we like it. (laughs) Thank you for being here. So I'm struck by the idea that such a common reaction to say about uh, slavery and racism Oh, that's not me. Mm. I didn't do that. Um, but at least within the Jewish faith, most of our confessions are collective. Yes. So we go through the of confessing all kinds of different sins. And you could you could stand there saying and say, you know, um, but but there's there's something that is redeeming mm. about making a collective confession. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about both from the Christian and the Jewish perspective. What does it take to say this is not my fault, but it's my responsibility, or mm-hmm. this is not our fault, but it's our responsibility? Yeah, that's lovely. Um, and and thank you for for bringing up this liturgical piece within the Jewish community. Um, as you said, our prayers, particularly when we ask forgiveness on the high holidays, are all in the plural, and we list all these sins, and it's easy to say, well, you mean, you know, for the sin that I committed by this? I didn't do that, right? But it's all in the plural, and we are one entity, right? There is this sense, um, every Jew is responsible in some sense for the others. Um, and we also, we we think back to our past within the Jewish tradition, and we say, you know, we talk about the merits of our ancestors. God should forgive me if not, I'm not worthy because of the relationship that God had with our ancestors. Um, and that notion that we are tied to our past, we're the beneficiaries of our past, uh, is certainly true for us as Americans, as we are, whenever we came here, we, we've inherited this remarkable country, and we benefit from it, but those benefits come from somewhere, and part of where they come from, if we're going to enjoy them, we have to be aware of the fact part of where they come from is enslaved people. Yeah. Um, it, and I also appreciate that um, you raise up the question around the, the role of communal confession in this and, and how we move into that. that That's something we share in common with our Jewish um, siblings. I mean, we, <laughs> we got it from y'all, so thank you. It's wonderful. Um, so, and that's the thing. I think within Christian worship every single week, that is a communal confession. So I think in liturgical Christian churches, and so what I mean by that is Roman Catholic, um, Anglican slash Episcopal, Lutheran, um, even uh, Methodists and, and Presbyterians in a certain extent, um, a lot of your mainline 
Protestant denominations and Orthodox, you, you have that understanding of a communal confession. That's very different than when you're looking at um, very, very Protestant uh, Christian denominations, more in the Baptist tradition, the non-denominational evangelical Pentecostal areas. The, the focus in those areas are very much on individual salvation. So, so that's, a, that's an internal conversation within the church that I think we see played out in this because more often than not, I think that communal understanding motivates the more liturgical traditions and the more mainline traditions of Christianity to be taking this more seriously um, and, and seeing it as a communal act, even though we didn't own or, you know, in this day and time, we do see that collective responsibility. And so I think that's it. Knowing in the United States how, how the institution of slavery was such a tie into Christianity, there's that internal debate that goes on. You know, I'm struck well. as you talk about this tension between the individual and the collective. Uh, this notion of the collectives is very countercultural in America, period. Yeah, period, right. right. We talk about the rugged individual, the person who lifts them up themselves up by their bootstraps, the self-made man, you can use all these various expressions. And the idea is no one gave me anything, right? I'm entitled to whatever I exactly. create, um, as opposed to the fact that I'm part of a community, I have obligations to others. And I, not only those who are here, but those who are not here. Right, and, and, and that individualism that we find in American society, I think that's part of what we're battling up against in this, because it, it, in addition to that, because we've become hyper-individualistic over the last 50, 60 years. I mean, we've, we've been so for a long time, but really recently. But we also have to, note in how our histories have been told in this as well. Because um, I think that's part of that debate. And in, in the last um, session that we did, there was um, a comment that was raised up about um, critical race theory being taught in, in schools and whatnot, which I'm like, okay, so you're pushing back against teaching historical things that actually happen. But that whitewashing of history, I think, is an important piece when we're talking about collective understanding responsibility in this, because how can we take collective responsibility if we're in disagreement on what the history is? And, and we're really good, um, the, the whiteness part of society, and that's not saying every single person who's white, but people who bought into the system of whiteness, which is about power and, and, and domination over other communities, that, that's the hard piece. And I think that's why when we look at our governments, uh, state and federal, we can't even have a conversation about reparations because we're still having this fight on what history actually was. Um, and I don't know how we, I don't have an answer on how we unravel that. I think that's the debate we're having, but I think it's tied into that collective responsibility we can't take collective responsibility until we collectively understand what our shared history is. And if we're denying, if part of us is denying that, then we- Right, so we have competing narratives. Exactly. Right? Um, and, and no way to resolve them because there's no longer a sense that there's something objective to be, to be pointed to. Um, 
and and that's not just true here, and it's not just true around this issue. Um, you know, we we had the head of the Palestinian Authority stating in the United Nations that the Jews never had a temple in Jerusalem, right? Didn't mm -hmm. exist. Um, this was this last week, and it is so. When you can't agree on facts, it's very hard to go anywhere. Right. Right? Um, and I know that's not the conversation we're having. Yeah. We already talked about Israel. We're done with Israel for now. But but I do think that there's something similar there. If, if we can agree on some common narrative, if, when we can't, it's going to be very hard to, to go further. Um, right. Other questions yeah. or comments? We have several here. Hello. Um, anyway, I think the idea of reparations for slavery should be a non-issue. Mm. I think the statute of limitations has run out. When the Israelites left Egypt and they got the Egyptian gold and silver and whatever, mm. it was right after the event that happened. When Israel got reparations for World War, uh, not for World War II, but for the Holocaust, mm. it, it took place uh, shortly after the event happened, mm -hmm. the idea of reparations now for something that started in the 1700s uh, or maybe even earlier, I'm not really clear when, you know, when it happened, um, I think, you know, it's too late to, to really talk about uh, reparations. Uh, for who? Under what circumstances? You can't let the government do it because they're going to screw it up like they screwed up so many other things, you know, regarding, you know, the, the fraudulent claims and all, all this kind of stuff. So, like I said, my, my position is that it should not be a topic to discuss at all. It was a, a horrific thing. I wasn't there at the time. I can't imagine uh, what was going on. I'm certainly old enough to remember um, some of the you know, horrific things that happened in the South uh, in, in my generation, which were as a result of, um, you know, of, of slavery. Uh, I certainly read about it, uh, learned about it in school. Uh, to a certain extent, it's kind of hard to get your head around it. Uh, I've been to the South and I've seen plantations. I've seen where slaves live and under what conditions uh, they lived, and nothing terribly uh, pleasant. Sure. Yeah. So may, let, let me just respond for a minute. May, may I summarize that yeah. real quick? I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm understanding, and I also make sure that we capture it for the audio as well. So what I hear you sharing is you um, are of the opinion and of the, the stance that the conversation about reparations at this point is is moot. It was a horrible thing that happened, but we have such a time has passed that the the statute of limitations has has passed on it, and so th that that's what I'm kind of hearing in that in, in a very short nutshell. Is that a fair representation? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought of it from somebody else's point of view. I I kind of looked at that as being a historic. You know, the Sacred Rock, Rusty Lee, I certainly knew about him, but I can understand where somebody finds a statue of him or his majesty on a horse terribly offensive. I have no, yes. I have no so I, I do because I want to I want to respond briefly, and then I know there are other people who want to 
speak. I, I would just say this, the, the claim that reparations are due doesn't have to do with slavery. It doesn't only have to do with slavery. The assumption that when slavery ended, hey, the slaves were freed and there was some legacy there that people had to overcome um, is not really the claim that's being made. The claim that's being made is that it has influenced the generations from that time to this time. So that this isn't something that happened a long time ago. Right. That that this and that's when people talk about systemic racism. That's essentially what they're talking about. Now we could argue, we could disagree or agree as to whether that exists, but I don't think the claim of reparations is there were a group of people who were slaves. Um, this happened to them. We've benefited. Therefore, we have to pay them in some symbolic way. I think it's a much right. bigger. bigger and, and I think we. I think that's a good point, right? So when we talk about the, the fullness of this. We're not just talking about the time of, of enslavement, but we're also talking about the time that immediately followed after that, um, where we have Jim Crow and we have legal segregation um, in a large part of this country. And even if there wasn't legal segregation, there was societal and economic segregation, even here in the North. Um, the state of New Jersey, um, for instance, was the last state in the North um, to ratify um, the Emancipation Proclamation and was the last state to, to end slavery. Yeah, the last to end slavery in this state. Um, and that's a legacy that still sits with us. I mean, we have the fifth most school or fifth most segregated school system in the country. Mississippi does better than us. And, and, and that's a little bit old. I, that's pulling from something uh, that I read in 2020. So that could have changed since then. But even beyond that, in terms of when we're talking about the statute of limitations of it, it's been too long, I go back as a person of faith to what our scripture says about how do we, how do we make whole what was broken? Um, how, how do we create that? And when I, again, that's what I loved about this example from the prophet Ezra of how the Babylonian empire destroyed the heart of Judaism in, in a very real way in, in destroying the temple. And the way of making it right, even though it was three generations later, was by taking that collective responsibility. So it wasn't... But it wasn't even the Babylonians who took the responsibility. Oh, it was, yeah. It was the Persians, Persians who had conquered the Babylonians and let the people go back. And they saw what had been done and they took responsibility for it in a certain basic way, which is actually remarkable, yeah. utterly remarkable. Um, I want to give an opportunity for other people if they have questions or comments. Hi, um, I wanted to talk, talk about allyship and education, which are values, uh, Jewish values. So in terms of allyship, um, we, you mentioned reparations for Holocaust survivors. I had some familiarity with that, both professionally and through my family. And that wouldn't have happened without allyship from people who were not Jewish. And so I think from one perspective, we as Jews owe allyship as well to communities of color that are seeking reparations. Another thing I want to mention is education, which is a very strong Jewish value. And I do want to mention um, that there are efforts both in the state of New Jersey and also in the federal level. In the state of New Jersey, there are drafts of bills for a reparations task force both in the New Jersey Assembly and the New Jersey Senate, 
and the whole idea of the reparations task force, which is also mimicked on the federal level, that's known as HR 40, and in fact, our own Senator Cory Booker is the main sponsor of that one, being a New Jersey Senator. Um, the whole idea of the reparations task force is to study the history and come forward with recommendations. Mm. And the study itself, you know, use the word fact. We can all argue about facts all day long, but we can't argue about them unless we start to learn what there is to learn. So I wanted to put those two ideas on the table. Wonderful. Allyship and education. Allyship and education. That, that's great. You know, I, I would mention outside of what you said about the church, there have been moves. Uh, we saw San Francisco established uh, a process for, for reparations. Um, I was talking to a friend in Seattle today who tells me told me that the city council just passed something in, in Seattle around reparations. So I do think um, that there is movement, not just within religious societies, but in, in the secular world as well. Other comments or questions? Well, and, and as our next comment and question comes up, to, to that about education, I, I agree that that's a big piece. And and I know at the beginning when I was listing all the spaces where the Episcopal Church is, the whole Episcopal Church is not at that space, right? Um, trust me, I've got friends in Virginia that when that 10 million fund was passed, that, that was it was a fight to get there. But education is where we start with that. And we, as a, as a church, developed a program called Sacred Ground that explores that history. It's hard. But I not think, common grounds. Sacred. No, sacred ground. Did I say common ground? No, you did. Oh, thank God. <laughs> but um, holy, holy coffee. Yeah, why not? But um, I, I think that that's where if the conversation around reparations, whether that's individually or collectively, isn't a starting point, which it isn't for most people, we start with how are we building a relationship with ourselves and our own history? I got to the place where I'm at because I started doing my own family's history. That's how I learned that both sides of my family enslaved people. Um, that's hard information to take in, but it's only by facing that piece and, and seeing how that connects in the relationship with self that we can then start to look at these things. So thank you for just raising up the, the role of education in that and as a starting point, I think, for all of us. Good. Yes. Um, you know, from the last podcast you guys did, and then to this one, and, and a lot of the times in discussions of reparation, always prefects with, we just have to recognize, you know, what this is all about, educate ourselves to it, and, but how to do it is always the toughest thing. Yes. No one's been talking about that except for the city of San Francisco, but, you know, there are places that do it, and most most times it's very, very difficult to figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but like we not to say any names, but like my friend here mentioned, mm -hmm. um, I think one of the ways that it would be a lot easier to, uh, once we do get to a point how to do it, is try to, as difficult as it is, and actually rather mention it, is put the slavery thing aside. Because the truth is a lot of people do kind of feel that you know we weren't there. Many many years have gone by. There's uh, Cory Booker. There's President Obama. There's lots and lots of very very successful African Americans who have lived in our society who have done that. So this is what some people may be thinking. I think uh, a way to 
get people to understand reparations really is um, what what is happening in the 21st century in, in our society that is harming minorities of all types, but especially in the African American. And if it's be, if it's if there's damage to the African American society, okay, because of things that happened, you know, 200 years, 300 years ago, okay, that, that that's fine. But we don't have to prove that to anyone. Okay, we just have to really look at some of the facts, okay, as to what some of the damage is to say the African American minorities as well as any other minorities, which also may have been damaged, you know, through through uh, misgivings of society. Um, so uh, because any right-minded 21st century person might look and say, gee, that's that's not right, okay, um, for a person not to have some of the same opportunities for the racism, for the Jim Crow laws, but then, like you mentioned, uh, 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 law, unwritten laws, okay? Um, I was just talking to my son about an older biography about Bill Russell, especially since he just recently passed away. Was, you know, some people say that that's the greatest basketball player ever to play. And um, the, the biography between him and uh, Red Arback, okay, about the incredible amount of racism and Henry Aaron went through the same thing. You know, this is in the 50s and 60s, well past, you know, slavery or what have you. These are men who really reached the pinnacle of success in, in their uh, professions, obviously. Uh, but in any case, very, very recently, uh, Bill Russell, Hank Aaron, people like that, Hank, Hank, Hank Greenberg, even as, as a Jew. Okay, so these are things that were happening now and even up to today, if there is, um, you know, wrongs uh, against a certain minority. These are things that really have to be uh, have to be corrected. And just to say, um, looking back and saying, well, you know, someone's great 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 grandfather was uh, a slave, so we have to make right for that. Um, that might be just a little bit hard to sell. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm uh, arguing against yeah. separations, but I'm more arguing yeah. what's going on today that that's wrong. Whether whether it's because of, of uh, slavery or or it's just because of the way we uh, draw up our laws. Right. So to summarize, what I, I'm hearing you saying is, um, we should be looking at in in having our our kind of discussions and focus on the wrongs that we're seeing today and the, and 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 discussing reparations and, and and addressing the needs of now rather than going back several hundred in a very tight nutshell that's what i'm yeah. hearing here like thing because see when you especially compared to the holocaust reparation all of us here in the room know holocaust survivors we've heard the stories we know what it was like you know when uh when they went in and opened up Auschwitz when american troops got there what these people had and and why it was important to make sure that um they can try to uh, um, you know, move mm -hmm. all of their lives. And in right. some cases they have, in some cases they had. Uh, so that's that's a lot easier. Yeah, I, I, I understand your point and I, I think it's a good one. Um, that brings us to very pragmatic questions, right? And the question is, if you stop talking about uh, reparations and you simply talk about inequalities in society that we, need to address, um, people may argue, well, 
you know, we've had inequalities in society for a long time and we've tried. We had all these programs in the 60s and we did all this and all that. And there isn't a sense of ownership collectively. I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way. I'm not at all. I'm, I'm thinking just purely, you know, if you want to fix things, um, to say, oh, there are these people and it's unequal and that's bad, that's different from saying there are these problems and I not only can be part of the solution, but historically, people like me have been part of the problem. I mean, I just think it's a very different way to look at it. Whether it's more effective or less effective, that's that's a different question. Yeah. It and I think I, I, I disagree with you on this respectfully <laughs> it, 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 in, for, for several reasons. Um, one of my degrees is in history. And one of the things that I've learned is if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And I think, and we see that battle going on right now, secularly in our education systems and our state systems about what is the history that we're telling. And I think that we, we have to acknowledge our history because the history is determining our current reality. The same way the decisions we make now will at some point become history and it will direct what happens after us. And when we're talking about, particularly about reparations, um, we, we, we have to look at how these systems developed and were put in place in the first place in order to understand how interwoven they are into our lives. I mean, for those of us who are white, we don't have to think about race. The vast majority of us, well, I won't speak for y'all, but I can speak for myself. I did not get raised up thinking about the color of my skin. I did not get raised up having to think what that meant in the wider world um, and, and the ramifications on my educational attainment, my economic achievement, even the health of my body and my livelihood in terms of how long my lifespan will be. And all of these are intrinsically tied up into our history. And if we don't name that, if we don't own that, then we're, we're doomed to fall into these cycles. And I'm gonna try and put an example on the fly together on this, but that, that notion of um, that, I, I see this a lot in wealthier, wider areas that see, for instance, poverty in educational attainment um, for those who are lower rungs as, oh, well, they're being lazy. They're not trying hard enough, right? That bootstrap theory. Well, that's intrinsically tied to the founding of our nation, right? Us as, as a white community, we have been told the story that we have done everything on our own. And if we ignore our history, that means that we can ignore that that's what we've been told. And so it, what we hope can be responses, right? Even if it's well-intentioned responses to addressing economic inequality or all these different things, if we're still operating from the same assumptions and the same worldview that we were taught and put in without us realizing, then we're doomed for all of our solutions because they will be a part of that system. And so I don't disagree with you that we do need to look at how we implement the idea of reparations in a variety of ways and addressing the things now, but we need to understand the history before we can understand fully how we start to that. We're going to take one more question or comment if there is, because we're pretty much out of time. 
You guys can fight it out. It is very good. I mean, I think as progressives, we um, push back you know, the church for organized religions, you know, for any of the, you know, when they use it to justify programs or abortion or whatever. So I have responses, and you start quoting scripture, and I, I agree with you, I love hearing it, but I just wonder whether it's a little counterproductive in terms of that discussion. Um, you want to do that? You, you, you sorry. All right. So the question is: Is is quoting scripture counterproductive? Right. It does. Um, Separation of churches. So right. So right. So is it counterproductive? We have this issue of the separation of church and state. Um, you know, why should we? We should be talking in civic terms, not in religious terms, uh, except that. You know, each of us speaks from our own place, right? And and as a religious person um, and a part of a religious community, it's important to me to express the values of that community. Uh, and and I would also suggest that lots of people want to talk across the board about the sort of the Judeo-Christian heritage of America, that that has somehow become part, for better or worse, of our cultural ethnos. And um, so I, I don't know that it's not helpful. Um, I mean, it depends what you say and what you do with it. But, you know, I, I this is not the same thing at all. But I'm, I'm struck by the fact that when people talk about uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., they don't talk about reverend. Amen <laughs> to that. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was a religious leader um, and his message was a religious message, um, a message appropriate for everyone. Um, and of course, one of his partners was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who also, who was at one point, I think on the cover of Newsweek uh, as a sort of moral force in the country who spoke in very religious terms. So I, I don't think that the fact that we have a separation of church and state means that religious voices shouldn't be heard in the marketplace of ideas and that they are simply discounted because they're religious. After all, the ideas are the ideas, Yeah. right? If you, and I, I'm sorry to yeah, keep going. Yeah. And I, um, Justice, justice, you shall pursue. Yes, it's a religious idea. It's in scripture. But, you know, truth, justice, and the American way. I recall someone fighting for that with a cape, I think. Um, so, yeah. anyway. Yeah, and it, yeah, we're on the same page on that one. Um, you know, when we talk about separation of church and state, I think it's important to remember that the underlying reasoning behind that wasn't to say we never talk about religion and faith at all. On the contrary, the idea of separation of church and state enshrined in our government is so that we can have that free exchange of ideas, so that people of different religious um, backgrounds can express those publicly and safe 
safely. I mean, if we look at the origins of why the first colonists came here is because they were escaping religious persecution. That's why we stipulated that in. And so as a federal government, right, you know, what that means is we can't enact laws that is going to raise a one religious community over another. It, that's an important thing. But when we're having the conversations about what drives us, like when we vote and when we protest and march and, and create bills, we can't separate out our faith from who we are. I mean, it, and I think that's the biggest fallacy in this larger argument in our country right now. Um, just because we have separation of church and state doesn't mean we can't bring our faith with us into the conversation. I think it, it's American to do that. And I stipulate that by saying, I think some take that and abuse it and use it in incorrect ways. Like we see most recently, I think with the uh, the restrictions around abortion in North Carolina, I've got some serious um, conflict with that one in the language people use. But it, it, and the other piece of this that I would name as well is, you know, right now we're not speaking in the, in the halls of our government. We're speaking in the hearts of our religious communities. And I think as, faith leaders, I won't speak for you on this, but for me, as a faith leader, I think it's vitally important to be speaking on these things. I've been raised up by the community to, to share our faith, to preserve our faith, and to teach our faith. And that's part of my responsibility as, as a priest to say, this is what our scripture is. This is what our scripture says. And what's embodied in our scriptures, this is what God reveals for us is being beloved community and how to, to live in the world. And I also want to acknowledge, too, that our scriptures, this is the collective history of the faithful in the past. It's gifts that they offer us, too. And so it's not just God's gift to us, but it's the gift of our ancestors and how we address this. And so I think we can't, we can't start legislating and creating action plans until we start addressing the root of it, which I always believe starts at the heart and at the soul. And I'm going to... Um... But you have the last word on that because we are way, way over time in what has been, um, which has been a really fruitful, I think, discussion. I hope you all agree and uh, look forward to if you have time to stay for a few minutes and have a cookie, we'll say hello over that. In the meantime, shalom, y'all. <laughs> and please, if you're listening to the podcast, like us and continue listening. <laughs>